This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It takes a veteran to know a veteran. That's the idea behind a new suicide prevention effort. Joshua Ochoa lives in New York City and serves in the National Guard. He's enrolled in a 10-month training program to help veterans prevent suicide among their peers. No one will understand our pain but us. So... I took an oath when I became a soldier to never leave a fallen comrade behind. And that's what I'm here for, to to help out veterans whatever way I can. The idea for this roughly year-long training comes from Heather Ely of Granby. For years, she has held retreats in Colorado and across the country for military families to help them cope with the stress of deployments. Last March, one of the participants, a husband, father, and former member of the U.S. Army Special Forces, took his life, and that set her on a new course. And uh, Heather, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. How did you learn that one of your participants in those earlier retreats had taken his life? Actually, I received a phone call from his wife, Bonnie, and she specifically said, Heather, we've lost Brian. I don't know what to tell the kids. This is Brian Walton. Correct. Here is his wife reading part of a letter that she wrote to him after his death, and she read it aloud at one of your retreats. I know you had thoughts that we would be better off without you. Those thoughts that you were not a good person, felt like you couldn't do anything right because you were memory loss. You told me about the intrusive thoughts you had in the horrors of war that interrupted your mood and everyday thoughts. I hope that you have peace now. The couple had three boys. Uh, Just briefly, um, tell us about the retreats like the one the Walton family attended and and what the goal of those are. So with Project Sanctuary, our therapeutic retreats are six days in length, and they're really built to empower the family, to reconnect them. We work on communication skills. We work on relationship issues. We have counselors available, and we also have social workers. Because they've had a member of the family, in a way, torn apart from them and often have to reintegrate them when they return. And not just reintegrate. A lot of times these uh, service members are dealing with post-traumatic stress, traumatic brain injuries, and some other things. So it's not just the distance and the time away from the family, but they often come home struggling with some new issues. In a way, it's like dealing with a, a new member of the family, a changed member of the family. Did you have some sense that Brian Walton was struggling with those kinds of demons? Brian Walton was really typical of most of the families we see and most of the veterans we see. Um, They're usually proactive. They're following up. They want help. That's why they're attending our retreats. And so it must have come as as a shock that he took his own life. It did. Um, The Waltons were a family that were followed up with. So after the retreat, we continued to stay with them and provide support and services. He was in counseling. He was taking his meds. So on the surface, it looked like everybody was doing everything they could. On the surface. But um, you do a little digging and you find out more, I guess. Absolutely. Um, getting to know Bonnie a little bit more this past year, she was able to identify some red flags. Tell us about those. Um, his last couple of weeks, he had been increasingly um, uh, angry. Uh, he was isolating. Even though people reached out to him, he was reluctant. Uh, he was drinking more. When you learned about the suicide, did you feel in some way that your previous efforts had, had missed the mark? 
Was there some sense that that something needed to change? Absolutely. The first thing we did was review all communication. What more could we have done? Uh, My team and my veterans that work with the retreats immediately wanted to reach out to all 800, 900 families and say, what more can we do? Are you okay? Please know that we're here. Mm, So this prompted a check-in with with the hundreds of families you've had at this retreat over the years. Actually, it didn't. I pulled them back. I said, that's irresponsible. You don't have the clinical knowledge. You don't have the education to reach out to 800, 900 families. Let me go get you the support and the education you need to be able to do that. And I'm assuming that's in part how this new effort was launched. Uh, And so to do that grounded in counseling and to have the right approach, tell us just a bit more about the training, and this idea of empowering veterans, I guess, to spot the potential warning signs in other vets. Right. Our veterans are already peer mentoring their friends. They're already reaching out and doing what they can to buddy check and to make sure everybody's okay. So our training is 10 months in length, and we're focused on self-care to make sure that they're taking care of themselves, resiliency skills, and things like therapeutic communication, red flag boundaries, and We've also established our program with a tier of support. So they have a veteran coach checking in with them once a week. And we have a licensed counselor overseeing the whole program. Can you give us an example of an exercise you do or a lesson you teach? Uh, we do a lot of role playing. Uh, so What might that sound like? Well, sometimes it's a little bit funny. Um, Veterans have a wicked sense of humor. Okay. Maybe some gallows (laughs) humor after what they've seen. Okay. Take take us into that room. But we will uh, sit two veterans back to back in chairs with a coach or a mentor uh, standing between. And one veteran will be the suicidal, disgruntled, nothing's going right. I can't find a job. My wife doesn't understand. And then the peer mentor will say, wow, that really sounds tough. So tell me more about that. And start reeling them in, building that trust, creating that bridge so that hopefully we can offer support and get them into counseling. Um, the peer mentor program's meant to complement whatever else the veteran is doing. Because there's a lot of talk already in the armed forces about suicide prevention. I think of the battle buddies idea. Mm-hmm. How does this differ from what they're already hearing in their respective branches? I love that question. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so many programs are focused on suicide prevention. Mm-hmm. And then you're talking about suicide, suicide, suicide. So we take a different approach. We're talking about self-care. We're not talking about not killing yourself. We're empowering these veterans to go save other lives and help other people. I really believe that when we heal ourselves is because we're helping others. So the focus isn't on I don't need to commit suicide. It's wow. I've got a responsibility to go out and help my friends not commit suicide and live healthier lives. And this winds up, I think, being therapeutic for the trainees as well. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a win-win situation. Our peer mentors are doing well. They are taking care of themselves. So recently you had the group gather for a retreat in Grand Lake for further training. And here's one of your trainees. This is retired Navy and Army veteran James Holland, who's from Texas. He's talking about the challenges of military life and how successes in the military don't necessarily translate to civilian life. Not to brag or anything, but I got a whole chest full of medals. Yeah. If I go to an employer and say, yeah, I got this, I got that, and I did a great job, I got a word for this and that, they don't care. Yeah, so 
know, sometimes it, sometimes I guess it, sometimes it hurts. You know, it's like you put so much into it. I put 26 years into it. You know, do a lot of crazy stuff, see a lot of crazy stuff, and then you come back and nobody really seems to care. So this is a gentleman who says, I have medals after medals after medals, and I come back to the, you know, the private sector, and in some ways that that's not recognized. Is that a source for a lot of the consternation you hear among veterans? And, and what are the other triggers, if you will? Oh, absolutely. Um, our military service, they do extremely well training our service members to go to war and to be proactive. They don't train them on how to come home and how to be a father and a member of the community again. The strength lies in their sense of service. They want to serve. They want to have purpose. They need that hope. So through our retreats and through our peer mentoring program, we give them that opportunity to remember who they are as a person, as an individual, so that they can continue to serve and have purpose and hope. I see. This This is a part of service. This allows them to continue to serve in this role of helping their battle buddies, if you will, after battle. And how, how do you know it, it works? What will you do to measure this? You know, measuring... Obviously, uh, we'll take a look at suicides, but already the program is a success because our peer mentors who've come through the program are practicing self-care. They're buddy-checking each other. They're making sure one another are okay. They're following in with their coaches. They're getting the education. They're learning how to speak therapeutically and ask for help when they need it. And I suppose part of the strength here is you could teach families to do this. And I think you do some of that in the retreats. But back to this idea of it takes a veteran to know a veteran. There's something very specific about that relationship, isn't there? It is. And especially during the trainings and the retreats, they need their brotherhood. They need that sense of camaraderie. They understand each other. It's a safe place. Now, family support is wonderful, and that's what our other retreats are. But this program is specific, and it's taking it to a whole new level. Um, It's absolutely magical to be at one of these trainings and watch the interactions and the relationships. The latest statistics from the Department of Veterans Affairs found that each day, 20 veterans die by suicide. You are so far training, I think, about 17 people. Is there a way to get this message out to more folks. Absolutely. So um, your show is a great example. Here we are. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Letting uh, veterans know that there are programs out there that work and there are programs that that are doing something to address this. Um, So many programs, again, are focused on just the suicide prevention. And I believe that we're unique and that we're multifaceted um, and that we're really empowering these veterans to help others, not just themselves. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Heather Ely is founder and CEO of Colorado-based Project Sanctuary, which organizes retreats for military families. And she recently launched a program called Walton's Warriors to help veterans prevent suicide among their peers. And that is named for Brian Walton, who took his own life. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
Every time you take a bite of Domino's Pizza or one from Pizza Hut or Papa John's, you eat mozzarella cheese made by Leprino Foods of Denver. This global cheese empire was built by billionaire James Leprino, who located its headquarters near the modest home in Little Italy where he grew up. Forbes reporter Chloe Sorvino got a rare interview with James Leprino. She calls him the Willy Wonka of cheese. And uh, Chloe, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. James Leprino is nearly 80. Forbes estimates his worth at about $3 billion. How did his company start? So his father had a small specialty food store in uh, Denver's Little Italy neighborhood. Uh, It's actually where the current headquarters is. His sister was making ravioli. His dad was making fresh mozzarella and ricotta. And he was the youngest of five. So he was helping out, you know, after going to school. And, you know, after he graduated from high school, he, you know, had been hanging out in pizzerias in the area and realized with, you know, really great foresight that, Pizza was about to explode. That pizza was about to explode. How how did he sense that that was going to be the case? You know, well, uh, obviously, you know his his father is um, an Italian immigrant. They grew up in a you know a very Italian American family, and it was a time in America when pizzerias were popping up. Um, GIs were coming back from the war, you know, wanting to eat the pizza they had had in Italy. Um, And, you know, obviously with, you know, fast food growing so much and this being obviously delicious, but also uh, something to quick, quickly eat um, for dinner with the family, um, it really just took off. Who knew that World War II is somewhat pivotal in pizza's expansion? So he, he was prescient in this regard. And tell us a little bit more about the company today. You visited its Denver headquarters. Yeah. Um, so the company today uh, has 50 patents. They have sales of over $3 billion annually. Uh, their cheese is eaten in 40 countries. They have uh, more than 300 clients. So it's really a hugely global company. Um, but it, it, it they really have perfected food engineering. Um, the pizza cheese that you know, you're eating at these chains that you're eating in pizzerias around the country – they, you know, it's more science than art. Yeah, we'll get into that because it's fascinating how they customize cheese production and recipes for particular clients. Um, And this is cheese that is as well in a lot of like grocery store foods, isn't it too? Yeah, they have a white label. So they'll uh, shred cheese for, you know, a lot of different supermarket brands. Um, Their cheese is also in uh, a lot of frozen foods. So aside from just frozen pizzas, they're in smart ones. They're in marine calendars. Uh, they're in bagel bites. Um, they're even in cheese enchiladas. <laughs> so it's really it goes across the gamut. I think Hot Pockets is on the list too. Um, desc- yep. Describe yep. Mr. Leprino himself for us. What's he like? You know, he's a humble guy. Um, he you never want to be the face of this company. He has such business acumen, but he really wants to take a step back. You know, I think it speaks volumes that, you know, there's over this many decades of building this company, becoming so successful. His photo has never been on the company website. Um, Governor Hickenlooper actually told me when I was out in Denver, uh, you know, this is one of the great Colorado companies and uh, he wishes Jim would let Governor Hickenlooper speak about it. Um, huh. uh, you know, he 
he uh, goes to church regularly. Uh, it's very religious. Um, but, you know, he keeps to himself. Yeah, and when you Google him, you point out that, like, the only image that comes up is a really old one, uh, I think, from the 70s or 80s. Yeah, 1978. Yeah. Oh. Uh, it was a, a struggle finding that even. Um, I really, before I even met him, I didn't know what he was going to look like, so... It's interesting that the pizza business is one of the most competitive in the country. And cheese, it turns out, is one of the more expensive ingredients in pizza. It's really where a lot of the money goes in that business. And, yeah, it's 40% uh, of the costs. 40% of the costs. So the, the, the cheese and the cheesemaker become incredibly important in that equation. What has... Leprino done to be so dominant globally, as you point out, not just nationally, but globally? You know, I think it's two things. Um, I guess we'll get to the technology later. But, you know, on the business side, I think the fact that, you know, he has kept such a low profile um, that, you know, a consumer wouldn't recognize his brand um, of Leprino Foods, you know, that's helped him be agile. Um, He is so obsessed with quality and maintaining these relationships. He know he has basically built this company from basically having one big, big contract, which was Pizza Hut, which in, in, until the peak of the um, relationship in the 90s, it was accounting for 90% of Loprino Foods' sales, um, which is crazy. Uh, but so, you know, they have this amazing customer service and when a company like a Pizza Hut encounters a problem, they're there to find a solution. And often that solution is technology-based. Yeah. Well, what, let's move to technology. Uh, Chloe Sorvino, who's with Forbes, she's written this piece uh, called This Secretive Billionaire Makes the Cheese for Pizza Hut, Domino's, and Papa John's. And she's referring in uh, the headline to James Leprino in Denver. What role does... Yeah, our t- magazine head was... a. Uh, the big cheese. The big I cheese. Think. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's any number of uh, word plays you can have there. Um, so l- let's talk about technology. I mean, in some ways, this really starts with the idea that he, he decides early on to hire a professional cheesemaker, right? Yeah. Um, I think Jim Prino is a great example of someone who knows what they don't know. Um, he wanted to grow. He saw this rise of pizza coming, um, but he realized that he was not going to be able to make the fresh mozzarella balls that he and his dad were, you know, padding together day in and day out, um, just, you know, to scale. Yeah. Um, these chains wanted something that could shred easily, um, you know, with, you know, especially high schoolers or um, part-time workers that aren't um, that don't need a lot of training. They wanted it to be easy. So he saw that he would have to make a cheese that was very easy to use and very easy to scale. Um, so uh, he, it's funny. He hired a cheesemaker, Lester Kilsmeyer, who unfortunately for him, uh, when he was in World War II, he was shot down. And he had come from a family with a cheese factory in Wisconsin. And because they thought he had been killed in action. They sold the cheese company, um, which Lester was, you know, primed to take over when he got back. Um, so eventually, he did get back to America and found this out. And oh my gosh, uh, Jim found him basically, and he wasn't even making cheese anymore. So the the man who's responsible for these incredible innovations, you know, uh, if it, it could have gone way differently if, uh, if that family hadn't sold that company. 
Right. And then the Leprinos uh, were able to absorb this master cheesemaker. Yes. And I, I think what's really fascinating about your article is, is how nitty gritty or grady, <laughs> great grating you get in this piece, because it's really important that cheese shred easily if you're making it for pizza. huh? Right. Yeah. Um, so on the top line, this company has 50 patents, but, you know, you can boil that down to a few that are really, really important. Okay. The ones that hit it home for me. Um, so they Lester figured out that you can um, spray on a preservative mist throughout the process. He first figured out that if it went on at the end, you could add flavors to the cheese. And that's why we get, you know, a salted caramel cheese today or, you know, a jalapeno mozzarella, um, which is, you know, um, parts of the things that they sell at the school lunch program, for example. Um, but if you spray on a preservative mist early on in the process, uh, the cheese changes completely. And Depending on what's in that mist, it can make um, the bubbles on a pizza, um, you know, perform differently. It can make it melt more. It can make it melt less. It, um, they uh, call it, you know, the stretch of the pizza cheese. And, you know, depending on what a client wants and what their market research tells them and what types of ovens they're using, um, you know, that's how they can um, formulate them for, you know, each specific client. Oh, that's fascinating. And of course, a pizza's bubbliness, there's probably conversations that go on in boardrooms about how <laughs> bubbly this particular product should be. Right, exactly. You know, uh, I did this two-hour tasting there and <laughs> uh, was filled with cheese by the end of it. But um, that's really what kind of brought this home, you know, looking at a, a Pizza Hut pie with all those small um, really dark bubbles on it versus, you know, a Sam's Club type pie or um, a Papa John's where it's more spread out and they want um, fewer but larger bubbles. Um, and that's all through the engineering. Oh. Uh, do you want to talk about maybe one other patent before we move on? Yeah. So um, one other, which really just helped the scalability of this company because, you know, once they were able to scale to a certain level, um, obviously that drove down their prices. And that's what really was um, one of the biggest parts of them being able to continue growing and just dwarf their competitors. Um, so in the 1990s, they uh, – so Lester actually, he figured out how to cut down the aging time of the cheese from 14 days to four hours. Oh, my gosh. So, so just think about it. You know, if you don't have to hold the cheese in a warehouse for 14 days, how much faster you can ramp up production. That is fascinating. And, and Lester, <laughs> again, is the cheesemaker that he hired early on, James Laprino did, knowing that he wasn't the cheese expert necessarily. You know, Colorado right. had... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, uh, Lester, you know, worked basically up until he died at 95 years old. He, he was with, even, you know, he was had been long retired before that, but he was still coming into the Laprino Foods office every day. I think that really goes to show um, the special relationship that Lester and Jim, you know, developed over the decades. Colorado has a dairy industry. Do, do farmers here sell a lot to Laprino? Yeah, they do. Um, and it's going to be growing because... Uh, Laprino Foods just invested $600 million in probably the most state-of-the-art and safest dairy factory in the country, if not the world. Um, it's in Greeley, so just you know, a short drive outside of Denver. Yeah. And they've been building it for several years. Um, and once it's completed at the end of this year, it'll pr 
um, as their estimates say it'll account for around two-thirds of Colorado's dairy supply. Um, so, you know, with that factory, you know, you can't build a factory without having a dairy supply, um, you know, for a fresh dairy supply to be able to get to the factory in time. Um, but with that being built, it's, it's going to be a big thing for Colorado's dairy industry. Now, with the expansion of that Greeley plant, is there some sense that Leprino might be able to land a customer that it hasn't been able to? Is there one that has eluded this company? You know, there uh, there's always room for them to grow, and I think, you know, they're open about that. You know, they don't have an exclusive contract with Little Caesars, for example. Um, that could change. Uh, there also is, you know, the fifth largest pizza chain in the country is Papa Murphy's, which is a take-and-bake yeah. chain. And that's one that, you know, Loprino Foods executives have been going after for quite some time, um, and it's never really panned out. But I I don't doubt that Loprino Foods will stop going after that company. Um, it's very fast-growing and, you know, it obviously represents a pretty significant part of the pizza market in America. Well, thank you for a look into this fascinating world. I don't think I'll probably eat cheese quite the same way again, Chloe. <laughs> That's Chloe. Thank you for having me. Chloe Sorvino. She's a staff writer at Forbes, and she profiled Leprino Foods founder James Leprino. There's a link to her story, Big Cheese, at cprnews.org. <laughs> Today, we're going to take you inside the sovereign movement, an ideology that fundamentally questions the power and the authority of governments. The FBI considers this movement a domestic terrorist threat. It has a presence in all 50 states. One Colorado county, though, has become attractive to followers of this movement. Tensions there are mounting between them and law enforcement. Westward reporter Chris Walker went to Castilla County. This is along the New Mexico border. And Chris, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. What does it mean to be a part of a sovereign movement? So sovereign is an umbrella term which really encompasses a lot of different beliefs and organizations. So the Southern Poverty Law Center estimates that there are between 100 and 300,000 people that hold sovereign beliefs. But that can range from tax dodging to militia movements. And historically, there are some precedents in the Posse Comitatus movement and the Montana Freemen. Um, And what it comes down to at its most basic level, most adherents believe that the U.S. government has become corrupted at its various levels. And the second is that they believe in a common law system of government, which means that they only like to adhere to laws that are set by judicial precedent not by statutes that are passed by legislations, say, at the federal or state level, or local ordinances. So um, so they don't think that they are under contract to follow many of the laws that you and I do. Essentially, the idea is that everything should emanate either directly from the Constitution or from court rulings associated therewith. And so anything that comes out of the Capitol in Denver or the Capitol in Washington is is to be ignored? That's more or less correct. Okay. Is anti-government an accurate description of their beliefs? It can be. So they're not necessarily un-American. So a lot of them hold a lot of uh, a lot of reverence for our founding fathers. So it's not that they're against the concept of government, but they are anti-government in the sense that 
recently passed laws they don't agree with. And so that can create problems. And again, that could be on the federal level or it could be a land use issue. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in Castilla County because that's often how it manifests there. Uh, You've been interested, I understand, in reporting on this subject for some time. And after Mm -hmm. sending a few inquiries, a man named Jeremy Costley invited you to Castilla County. He was willing to connect you with people involved in the movement. And you were even allowed to listen in on uh, national assembly calls. Uh, Why do you think he gave you this access? So sovereigns have been lambasted by the media And also, there's a lot of pejorative language, even in the FBI description of the movement and the Southern Poverty Law Center description of the movement. So let let me say the Southern Poverty Law Center attracts some of the domestic terrorist groups, race groups, uh, hate groups, things like that. Yes, that's correct. Uh, So my understanding of why I was granted access was I approached Mr. Costley and some other individuals and said, listen, I would like to tell your side of the story. And I don't have any agenda here. Um, I did tell them that I will also be speaking to folks that you don't agree with, including elected county and city officials. But I will get your side of the story in there. And apparently that was seen as such a rare step to be taken by a reporter that there was some excitement for them to talk to me. Is it responsible to get their side of the story? I think so. because. Because there have been a lot of conflicts, and they'll be the first to admit that, yes, there are disagreements which can range from armed standoffs to court proceedings. And so I think it's important to understand why there are two different sides and why we have those conflicts. Uh, This is interesting. Uh, Costley was actually arrested about 10 minutes after you met him? Yes. What, What happened, briefly? So this was... Certainly unexpected. He was already scheduled for a court hearing because he was wanted by the city for impersonating a peace officer. Which city is this? This is the city of San Luis. San Luis. And this is in Costilla County. So uh, some sovereigns have their own versions of law enforcement officials. They call themselves constitutional marshals. And so Mr. Costley had sworn, had been sworn in as a marshal. Although the city government does not recognize that, so they accused him of impersonating a peace officer. So there was already a trial set for that, and that was when I was going to go down to meet him. So I got there about 10 minutes before his hearing, met him across the street from the courtroom, and no sooner had he got inside than he was arrested for completely different charges, which neither he nor I expected so he is being held for on a bond of $250,000 for molesting and abusing a minor, sexually abusing a minor. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Westward's Chris Walker. He's written a piece called The Sovereign Movement, his anti-government off the grid and gunning for justice. It's largely reported uh, from a dateline of Castilla County in southern Colorado. And the population there, Chris, is growing. People are drawn to that region by cheap land, Mm -hmm. the promise of relatively lax land use regulations. Some move there to build eco-friendly communities. There are retirees, people who are broke, just want to be left alone. Mm -hmm. So this is not uh, by any means just sovereigns. Um, But I, I do understand that many of those who hold sovereign beliefs also live off the grid in Costilla County. Talk about how the movement t- took root there. 
That's correct. So Costilla County is one of the poorest and most rural counties in the United States. So there are only 3,600 people spread between 40,000 lots. And some sovereigns are drawn to the region because there's this perception that there isn't much government oversight. Uh, The problem is a lot of them don't realize that the county has passed ordinances which require even in the most rural and remote parcels that you build septic systems, that you have electrical and water systems. So the problem arises when sovereigns arrive, arrive, they don't expect that they have to adhere to those laws. And then suddenly they find themselves squaring off against code enforcement officers. And that's led to some of the problems in Costilla County. Indeed, uh, that is a manifestation of the tension down there. And um, there have been violent incidents associated with various sovereign groups around the country. According to an analysis by the University of Maryland, 54 law enforcement and criminal justice officials have been killed by people connected to this movement Mm -hmm. between 1990 and 2015. But for a picture of of the tension in Castilla County, you did a ride along with uh, one of the code enforcers. What's that? This is now we're on the public road. Okay, this ain't a private road. This is the public road. It's Delaware Trail. Okay, I'm not on your property. I'm on a public road. It's a bit tough to hear the other voice there, but this person is insisting that he's on a public road and has the right to be there as a a code enforcer. And uh, they're yelling things back like, you've got to go. Uh, it strikes me that all of this could escalate rather quickly. How, how is law enforcement in Castilla County approaching this? So there are two code enforcement officers that are tasked with patrolling the entire valley looking for uh, violations of code. And so they never go out into the valley without wearing bulletproof vests and without being armed. They have been threatened off properties multiple times um, by very visible displays of people carrying weapons. And the clip that you just heard during our ride-along, the patriarch of that household had been arrested the day before, also on sexual abuse charges. And so you're actually hearing his kids yelling at us to get off the property. Normally, I was told by the code enforcement officers, they might not even approach that property because the um, those kids' father had previously threatened them to shoot them as soon as they approached. What does the movement look like beyond Castilla County in Colorado? Uh, their their presence and their and maybe their actions against public officials. Right. So it's it's very easy to concentrate on these sensational instances of armed standoffs, but it manifests itself in many ways. And so, about four weeks ago, or I guess it was on on March thirtieth, the Colorado Attorney General issued an indictment against eight individuals that are part of this movement who had been engaged what the in what the FBI calls paper terrorism. So paper terrorism. Paper terrorism is issuing false arrest warrants, liens, um, and other other threats against county officials that sovereigns believe are corrupt. And so this has been going on in Colorado for years and there are Officials ranging from district attorneys to justices to even Governor Hickenlooper who have received these types of threats from sovereigns. And they're using the traditional legal system to do this or they're using the the system that they have sort of created in parallel? 
Yes and no. Okay. So some of the filings are their own forms and their own uh, their own documents. And those can be sent directly to offices. In some cases that I heard of, including um, Denver or District Attorney Stan Garnett from Boulder County told me that uh, there were arrest warrants actually posted on the mailboxes of all the houses in his cul-de-sac. So that is outside the legal system. Once folks get uh, once folks get charged and end up in the traditional legal system, there are all sorts of friv- frivolous filings that they do to try to bog down those court cases. Okay. And so that's where the paper part of the terrorism comes in. Uh, we're speaking with Chris Walker of Westward. His piece is called The Sovereign Movement is Anti-Government Off the Grid and Gunning for Justice. The FBI identifies people associated with this movement as sovereign citizens and considers them part of a a terrorist movement. Why? So, as you mentioned earlier, there have been a number of people who have been killed because of standoffs. And, And so the FBI is concerned mostly for law enforcement personnel when these situations get out of control. And one of the most cited cases was there was an Arkansas in 2010 there was a traffic stop in Arkansas where two individuals with these beliefs gunned down the officers right on the side of the road so i think it's a fear for the safety of law enforcement which is the basis for that claim by the FBI uh and then of course you have this whole other aspect of paper terrorism which is its own separate issue well, let's dig uh, even further into some of their beliefs. While you reported this story, uh, those who follow this ideology told you that they take issue with the idea of sovereign citizens. You spoke with a man named uh, Roger Dowdell, and he said that term is just an oxymoron. Mm. We teach our kids from about the age of second grade to be interested in being a U.S. citizen. But again, you look up the word citizen, and it means subject. So when you, when you decide to change your status which we all have a free will choice of status. So when you change your status from a free, sovereign, independent American to be a U.S. citizen, you're putting down all your unalienable rights, and you're becoming a subject of their corporation. Okay, so he has a real problem with that term citizen. And what does he mean, Mm -hmm. subject of their corporation? Well, that goes back to what I said about this belief that the U.S. government has become corrupt So they don't believe in admiralty or interstate commerce law. So they believe that a lot of these statutes and ordinances that we follow have nefarious motivations behind them that enrich some shadowy elite group. That was never quite made clear to me. Um, But yes, the word citizen, this also goes back to common law. So citizen they see as being under contract. And that is the main issue is that they don't believe that they are under contract to follow the laws passed by government at various levels. So sovereign citizen is a term that the FBI likes to use in the Southern Poverty Law Center. But I heard this three or four times that there was this, they do like the word sovereign, um, but they don't like combining it with citizen. And as you pointed out, they believe it's oxymoronic. So how do they perceive public roads and the the post office, you Uh know? Well, that's one of the common criticisms of this movement is it seems that they follow laws that benefit them and they don't follow laws that they disagree with. So that, of course, is an irony is they might not pay taxes, but 
they still use county roads that are tax supported. So a lot of them will wax philosophical when you ask them those types of questions, but it's a common criticism by people that are against this idea. How do they feel about the new administration? Were you able to talk to them about that? I did. And, and you know, there wasn't, uh, it, it didn't seem to change much. There, the idea behind this movement is that the U.S. government has become corrupted over 100 plus years. Democrat or Republican or independent. Right. And, and even that clip that we heard from Roger Dowdell was, you know, he was saying this isn't Democrat, Democratic, this isn't Republican, this isn't Libertarian. This is a belief that fundamentally the U.S. government has become corrupt. So there doesn't seem to be that much there doesn't seem to be that much concern about who at one time is occupying the white house i mean it it, it might be a, a just a bit more extreme version of views people on the left and the right hold which is government is corrupt there's too much business in government there's too much money in government right um these are not st- strains strings that'll be unrecognizable to some Right. And I, I think that's why it's important to not just write off this group of people as crackpots, because there are I mean, it's pretty common that even you or me might disagree with parts of the tax code. So this just happens to be a more extreme example taken to a further extent. Westward reporter Chris Walker. You can read his story at CPRnews.org. This is Colorado Matters. <laughs> Deep in the San Luis Valley in southern Colorado is the state's oldest continually operated business. The R&R Market just celebrated its 160th anniversary. The owners, though, are ready to retire, and they aren't sure who will take over. CPR's Nathaniel Miner reports. It's a quiet afternoon at the R&R Market, a grocery and hardware store in San Luis, Colorado. Esther Manzanares is shopping for dinner. She's lived near this town of 600 for decades. It's about 20 miles north of the New Mexico border. The next grocery store is nearly an hour away. This store means a lot because you don't have to make a 45-mile trip to go buy a pound of hamburger or something that you need right then and there. You just come here and he practically has everything that you need. And it's been like this for a long time. In 1857, Dario Gallegos opened the store. It burned down twice, though an original wall survived and is in the back of the store today. Felix Romero is Dario Gallegos' great-great-grandson. Back in 1969, Felix and his wife Claudia were about to graduate from college when his dad made him an offer. He asked us if we wanted to come down and and run the business. He says, uh, I'll do it in partnership with you if, if you decide to do it. So we did. Forty-some years later, we're still here. Forty-seven and a half years, to be exact. Claudia remembers the date they took over, December 1st, 1969. Now, they live in an apartment just upstairs from the store. And it's, it's been good, but it's also been hard. It's been hard to stay in business this many years. San Luis can be a tough place to make a living. It's in one of the poorest counties in the country. Who knows, maybe there'll be a boom here one of these days. Yeah, right. We've been waiting since 69 for the boom. <laughs> but people look out for each other here. The same families, mostly Hispanic and Catholic, have lived here for generations. Ranches and crops like potato and barley surround the town, which is the oldest in the state. Felix and Claudia have given lines of credit to customers who need it. 
Felix says they're always paid back. And last winter, they made deliveries to an elderly woman who was snowed in. She lives out in the county, near the Rio Grande. She was out of propane. She was only using wood heat. Uh, She was out of cat food, dog food. They had to carry in her food and fuel in gunny sacks because the roads were so mushy. Deliveries can take a lot of effort. But it's things like that that have made the R&R market indispensable to many local residents. Felix takes pride in his community, but it's changing. A chain discount store recently opened on the edge of town. Felix can't stand the corporate ownership. Most people don't spend a dime in this community. They don't spend a dime. And that's a big deal. High unemployment means many local kids leave when they graduate high school. The county's population has ticked up a little recently, but many of those new residents live off the grid and like to be left alone. People still shop at the chain store and at the Walmart in Alamosa, but Felix points out that the R&R is there when you need a gallon of milk or a box of nails. Meanwhile, Claudia and Felix aren't getting any younger. For the last 10 years or so, they've been looking for someone in the family to take over the store. They say, oh, you guys, you don't get out of the store. You've got to keep it in the family. you got to keep it in the family. But that's, you know, as far as it goes. Keeping it in the family is really important to these two, especially Felix. I hate to be the one to break tradition. I really do. But I can't spend the rest of my life here either. And I'm at that age where you know, I've got to make some hard decisions. And uh, I'm going to make them. Just recently, Felix says a few distant relatives have expressed interest in the store. He's worried they may not be able to get a loan. But it's a good sign for this little town where traditions mean so much. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. Finally today, it's been a year since the shooting at Pulse, that gay nightclub in Orlando. 49 people were killed. It left Boulder composer Egamon Kasikli in shock. I mean, it was horrifying. The first thing that came to my mind was just like I was not just not safe anywhere. Kasikli, who is gay, decided to react to the massacre by doing something brave. He came out to his parents while he was staying with them in his native Turkey, and it went well. But when he posted about the experience on social media, he received taunts and threats. As a composer, he turned the whole experience into music. Kasikli says what struck him about the Pulse shooting and the events in his own life was how the trauma seemed to linger. It lurched forward with its own strange rhythm. So he put that odd pace into his music. this this weird thing that just doesn't go away and it's just that that heartbreak that ache that's just there and nothing can take that away this version of pulse is from denver's playground ensemble recorded in the cpr performance studio you can learn more about the music on an upcoming episode of centennial sounds that's the new podcast from cpr classical And that's Colorado Matters for today on CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.